Franklin and his young wife, Nelsie, first heard about the apocalypse, they were watching Battle of the Bands on NBC. A boy band from Gainesville had just gotten three thumbs down from a panel of judges and was looking nervous. They were going to have to fight a death metal group from Cleveland in a steel cage. All male pop acts are 0-15 lifetime against death metal groups, the Battle of the Bands color commentator reminded his play-by-play man as a corroborating infographic popped up on Franklin and Nelsie's television screen. And even more discouraging for the boys from Gainesville, a whopping 11 of those defeats have come against bands from the rough-and-tumble rust belt of northeastern Ohio. Yes, Doug, said the play-by-play man, I think you and I will both agree they're going to need a lot more than fleet-footed choreography and impeccable four-part harmonies to achieve victory in the steel cage when we return on. But the play-by-play man never finished his sentence. Instead, he was preempted by veteran newscaster Brian Williams, who calmly informed his national audience of the impending annihilation of the universe. had learned of the apocalypse earlier that afternoon in a special meeting with NBC executives, representatives from major corporate sponsors, and God. God, in his infinite mystery, had simultaneously materialized in television boardrooms across the world and had taken the form of the most beautiful, iconic woman of each respective country, Marilyn Monroe in the U.S., a Bollywood actress in India, 60s-era Sophia Loren in Italy, at each meeting gently and glamorously breaking the bad news and requesting, from here on out, to be referred to as she. God had explained to the TV presidents, news anchors, and advertisers that the world was about to end, more specifically at 11.30 p.m. Eastern, 8.30 Pacific, and that she was counting on them to help make the few final days leading up to Armageddon as painless and entertaining as possible. She wanted a minimum amount of bloodshed, a maximum amount of fun. As Brian Williams related all this to his viewers, aided by God's words transcribed by a visibly terrified NBC intern onto his teleprompter, extra-apocalypse-related information scrolled leisurely beneath him at the bottom of the screen, and Franklin and Nelsie, not knowing what else to do, read it aloud. God strongly discourages looting, raping, pillaging, said Franklin, instead advocates a relaxing four-day weekend. Hark, said Nelsie, herald angels allegedly sing. Franklin, thinking the whole thing was a joke, the NBC had sunk to a new low in pursuit of higher ratings, switched to ABC, but it was the same thing. Anchorman Charles Gibson offered his condolences to the viewing audience for their imminent destruction, and highlighted some of ABC's upcoming special televised events, such as Barbara Walters' exclusive one-on-one interview with the Risen Christ. He once said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, said Barbara to Jesus in a teaser for the interview. Now, 2,000 years later, do you still feel forsaken? Barbara, said Jesus, who looked vaguely like Allen Ginsberg, you're putting words. 
into my mouth. Franklin switched to CBS, to Fox, CNN, C-SPAN, CNBC, but couldn't escape the apocalypse. Fox blamed it on the liberals, MSNBC blamed it on the conservatives, Larry King took a call from Newark, New Jersey that was just one solid minute of weeping. Franklin grabbed Nelsie's hand, squeezed, and she squeezed back, but that was the extent of their marital consolations. Neither was prepared for the apocalypse. Who was ever prepared, except for cults, fundamentalists, and the insane? All they could do was watch television, and so they did. Channel after channel, solemn men in suits, scripture gently scrolling. Blessed are the peacemakers, full story tonight, at ten. Bunker in rural Oklahoma, 12-year-old Charmaine watched Fox's apocalypse coverage with her fellow members of the Tulsa Zebulonites, a breakaway sect of the Church of Arithmetically Consistent Prophecies. The Zebulonites' charismatic leader, Joe John Cyrus, was in the bunker's combination prayer rec room, Revelation Central, with the liturgical candles and the foosball tables, and was on the phone with a Fox News commentator whose brow-furrowed, makeup-enhanced face glowered at Charmaine and the Zebulonites from multiple televisions at the other end of the rec room, where there was also Yahtzee, Balderdash, and Twister. So what you're saying, Mr. Cyrus, said the commentator, is that our reports of an 11.30 p.m. Eastern apocalypse are inaccurate. Yes, said Joe John, whose face on the Revelation Central televisions was an archival photo acquired from the Tulsa world during his mutton chop phase. You claim that the apocalypse will actually occur at 7.77 p.m. Central time. That is correct, said Joe John. You are aware, of course, continued the commentator, his face various shades of orange on the decades-old Revelation Central televisions, that 777 is not a real interval of time. Joe John, now years post-mutton chops, exhaled deeply into the telephone mouthpiece and contemplatively stroked his countdown-to-the-apocalypse-style beard. When the seventh seal opens, he said, when the seventh trumpet sounds, when the seventh thunder echoes across the land, all these mysteries shall be revealed. Charmaine had lived in the Zebulonite bunker for two years, ever since her own private apocalypse day. She had come home from school, backpack on shoulders, bubblegum in mouth, pop song in head, looking forward to the latest episode of the Disney Channel's Dixie Duke, teenage data entry specialist, waiting for her on the familial Sony Trinitron, only to discover her apartment completely bare. The appliances, furniture, beauty magazines, framed photos, Trinitron, all gone, leaving only her mother, standing cross-armed where once had been a love seat as the sole unplundered artifact of her pre-apocalyptic life. How did they steal the refrigerator, was what she first said, after a sufficient cocoon of silence had absorbed her initial shock, but she never received a straight answer, instead got treated to a fumbling, 
elliptic, maternally delivered two-hour monologue, re the history of the Church of Arithmetically Consistent Prophecies, the late 90s formation of the splinter Tulsa Zebulonites, the wickedness of the modern era, the superfluity of material possessions, and the vital importance of getting clean for the end of days as her mother drove the exact speed limit to a secluded bunker just outside of Tuscahoma, population 867. In the bunker, known colloquially by Zebulonites as Zion West, Charmaine and her mother shared a room with two other families, the Marionettes and the Fergusons. Demographically, all three families in the cramped, unair-conditioned room were identical. One white, non-Hispanic adult female, 30 to 39. One white, non-Hispanic female child, 9 to 12. Adult males of any ethnic category noticeably absent, all three real daddies supplanted by the charismatic Fox News interviewed new daddy, Jojon Cyrus, daddy to all the girls in the bunker, at least until they reached the age when the daddy-daughter dynamic was modulated and compromised in ways that Charmaine had not yet experienced. Neither the marionette nor the Ferguson girl was Charmaine's friend. Charmaine avoided them when she could, cursed and kicked them when she couldn't. Her roommates enjoyed the full array of Zion West diversions, crucifixion coloring books, Who Wants Eternal Life Deluxe Party Edition, the Epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians, the game. While Charmaine longed for the vanished comforts of her pre-bunker youth, her CDs, magazines, computer games, Beverly Cleary books, posters of female pop stars mid-choreographed dance move, and male pop stars in shirtless triumvirates on bearskin rugs, her real daddy, who, admittedly, had disappeared long before the appliances and the furniture, a vanishing act explained, similarly to the exodus to Zion West, in a vague and unconvincing car-horn-punctuated diatribe by her mother during the long, tear-soaked drive that had brought Charmaine to Oklahoma from her native Kansas when she was six and a half years old. Charmaine's only true friend at the bunker was Wallace, the 13-year-old son of a hairdresser recruited into the Zebulonites from northern Florida. His mother had developed a bad meth habit prior to her religious awakening, and her hairdressing had understandably suffered, any haircuts requiring an electric shaver inevitably ending in disaster. Wallace, unlike the other bunker children, was unimpressed with Joe John Cyrus's oratorical skill, acoustic guitar playing, prophet status, and he and Charmaine had forged their friendship while sneaking out of countless theological PowerPoint presentations and ice cream social come Bible discussions to watch their favorite programs on Wallace's portable television in a secret crawl space, sharing a stretched out pair of headphones to avoid aural detection by any nearby fun-hating Zebulonites. Charmaine's mother discouraged any contact between Charmaine and Wallace, considered him and his meth-withdrawal mother a bad influence, reminded Charmaine the whole reason they came to the bunker was to get clean for the end of days, and Charmaine didn't want to be dirty in the eyes of the Lord for judgment, now did she? But Charmaine just nodded, said yes when she was supposed to say yes, no when she was supposed to say no, and then snuck out with Wallace anyway 
as she did during Joe John's Fox News interview, Wallace tapping Charmaine on the shoulder and whispering into her ear to follow him to the crawl space to watch Disney's apocalypse with the stars, Charmaine flashing a wide grin and taking his hand, letting him lead her past the Fox and Transdezebulonites to the hallway where the two co-conspirators erupted into laughter, imitating the distinctive baritone vocal inflections of their new daddy, the prophet, seer, and revelator, the most holy of holies, Jojon Cyrus. I can see into your soul, they repeated, giggling, which, when uttered moments before by Jojon over the telephone, had made the Fox correspondent blink rapidly and nervously adjust his tie, generously provided by Giorgio Armani, who, an announcer reminded viewers at the end of the broadcast, was proud to be the official clothier of the apocalypse. with the stars came to its millions of panic-stricken, Armageddon-stunned, solace-seeking viewers from a Walt Disney Studios soundstage in Burbank, California, populated by God, A-list celebrities, and a skeleton crew of gaffers, grips, best boys, hairdressers, makeup artists, camera operators, et al., who lacked any loved ones to brave the end of the world with, instead preferring to spend their final days on Earth setting up light diffusers and securing loose cabling with duct tape. One such crew member, a production assistant named Claire, had been promoted to assistant to the Lord and hovered gnat-like at God is Marilyn Monroe's side, diligently shielding God from autograph seekers and hangers-on and making sure all her earthly needs were being met. Coffee, said Claire to God, pomegranate juice, mineral water, meatball sandwich, crab pate. God, dressed radiantly in the iconic billowing white dress from the seven-year itch, placed a delicate hand on Claire's shoulder and gave her tense, knotted trapezius muscle a loving squeeze. Please rest, my child, said God, in Marilyn's trademark breathy, sultry voice. I have no need for such things. Your presence at my side is enough. Apocalypse with the Stars, taping for tomorrow's primetime broadcast, was designed to provide the decent, God-fearing citizens of the U.S. of A. with a pleasant, wholesome alternative to the rioting, theft, violence, depression, and sexual deviance that God and Disney ABC's top brass feared would engulf the nation after the advertised scheduling of their collective demise. Many high-profile stars refused to participate, instead wishing to return to their families and face their existential erasures in the sheltering embrace of their children, parents, grandparents, husbands, ex-husbands, ex-husbands, now ex-ex-husbands, any prior differences or disagreements, however profound or maritally fatal, 
now far less important than the need for familiar arms wrapped consolingly around the stars' heaving chests as their clocks ticked inescapably toward oblivion. But a healthy handful of celebs dutifully signed on, swayed by God's miraculously delivered texts to their cell phones and blackberries, explaining that this, the entertaining and comforting of their fellow humans, the comedic, athletic, and musical diversion of death, agony, and despair, was to be the greatest and most acclaimed role of their lives. After the assistant cameraman counted down from three and slapped the slate, the slate quivering, her voice quavering, the R&B singer Mary J. Blige performed a duet version of I Will Survive with Lizzie Gilbert, the eponymous star of Dixie Duke, teenage data entry specialist, plus as many sequent backup dancers as could be prevented from fleeing to their homes, convinced by the casting director that their electric slides and boogaloos would help soothe a nation overwhelmed by despair and terror, and God watched approvingly from the rear of the soundstage, tapping her high-heeled slingback sandals along to the beat as Claire waited nervously at her side. Claire was unused to assisting anyone who required nothing more than her presence. She was far more experienced with stars who demanded coffee, Evian water, M&M's sans orange, BLT with no tea, less experienced with God's hands gently massaging her shoulder and divine words tenderly tickling her ear than with producer's hands lingering uncomfortably long on the small of her back and director's spontaneous, unprovenanced, high-decibel tirades that served no discernible purpose other than to misdirect their magical world of Disney stress and obliterate Claire's already dental floss tenuous self-esteem. How Claire decided to come to work rather than retreat to the arms of loved ones like the other production assistants is, right before the official announcement was made, in Claire's case by Katie Couric on her apartment's Beyond Warranty Magnavox, she was applying a garnish of lemon to a mixed drink of gin, tonic water, and prescription antidepressants. Had there been any loved ones present whose arms she could retreat to, she would have informed them that her newest and final mixological creation was called The Last Cocktail. Maybe she wouldn't have drunk it anyway. Maybe, like so much else in her life, it would have disappeared swiftly and untraceably down the drain. But there's no way of knowing, because what happened was, like millions of other Americans, she saw Katie Couric interrupt the popular sitcom Affluent Manhattanites Bickering with her special bulletin, heard her announce the imminent apocalypse in a broadcasterly monotone, and was so floored, so taken aback, so unable to comprehend the actual Eastern Time scheduled end of the world that she sought the second opinion of basic cable, TBS, TNT, AMC, A&E, MTV, BET, every iteration of ESPN. None of them provided her with a non-apocalyptic alternative. Several such as the Home Shopping Network and the Golf Channel, simply broadcast color bar test patterns with the superimposed caption, May God have mercy on our souls. But then, 
Claire switched to CNN, Larry King, just in time to hear Larry say, Newark, New Jersey, you're on the air, and what followed was the most remarkable, feral, uninhibited weeping Claire had ever heard. One solid minute of it, distorted compellingly by the limited bandwidth of the telephone connection, a relentless primal caterwaul that left Larry King speechless, motionless, unable to take the next caller, his face frozen by Newark's static-saturated voice like those of sailors petrified by Medusa's serpentine gaze. And ten seconds in, Claire herself started to cry, sniffles at first, but by twenty seconds visible tears, thirty seconds sobbing, forty seconds bawling, fifty seconds wailing, each ten-second interval marking an n-squared rise in anguish over the last, so that by the one-minute mark, Claire was screaming at the top of her lungs, assaulting the furniture, smashing the dishes, prize-fighting the walls, God knows how many years of pent-up rage, sadness, and terror unleashed in a biblical flood in front of Larry King's freeze-framed visage, until the crying stopped, both Claire's and Newark's, mysteriously, at the same time. And Claire watched Larry regain his motor functions, adjust his trademark suspenders, wipe away the sweat pouring from his brow, and say, Thank you, Newark. Pensacola, you're on the air. After which Claire received God's text message. You are valued and loved and needed tomorrow at Walt Disney Studios at 7 a.m. And she picked up the lemon Prozac cocktail, calmly washed the sink, and emptied the gin, tonic, citrus, and antidepressants down the garbage disposal, conclusively deciding that, despite the imminent apocalypse, she wanted to live. minus 53 hours until the apocalypse, and Franklin and Nelsie were still huddled together on their couch, watching the modern world collapse on their plasma flat screen. The day before, they had talked about driving to Florida to be with Nelsie's family in Miami. Franklin wasn't particularly close to his brothers, and his parents had already passed away, but ABC's apocalypse coverage had dissuaded them from any travel helicopter shots of New York, L.A., Atlanta, Miami, all burning, 
polluters stripping clean Walmarts, Targets, Bed Bath and Beyonds, Old Navies, beating each other to death in the street over organic cotton tote bags and flannel duvet covers, and National Guardsmen abandoning their units and fleeing into the sewers with gas station pornography and stolen cases of malt liquor, stabbings and shootings and decapitations shown in graphic detail, ABC free from federal censorship after the ritualistic stabbings and shootings and decapitations shown in graphic detail, ABC free from federal censorship after the ritualistic mass suicide of the entire FCC early Wednesday morning. Still, despite all of this, ABC tried to balance out their footage of death and devastation with frequent light-hearted celebrity interviews Barbara Walters joking good-naturedly with Nicolas Cage about his hair loss, Kira Knightley about her accent, the four horsemen of the apocalypse about their impressive side-saddle routine, performed in a makeshift rodeo pen assembled in the Walt Disney Studios parking lot. No one mentioned their scheduled annihilation, their fears, anxieties, doubts, the plumes of smoke visible from downtown LA with National Guard were drinking themselves into a collective stupor in the sewers as the city above them burned. Franklin and Nelsie, meanwhile, had no idea how to handle these televisual juxtapositions, 30-minute segments of unimaginable violence and suffering seeking into cheerful banter between Regis Philbin and Tony Danza as Jesus prepared a three-cheese omelette over a nearby electric range. Mostly, they just held each other very, very tightly and prayed. How Franklin and Nelsie met is Franklin, having had, since childhood, a crippling fear of elevators, and since his promotion to a job on the 39th floor of the Bank of America Plaza building in downtown Atlanta, a rather daunting daily stairwell commute, sought the professional help of a psychotherapist who, after several months of initial therapy, insisted Franklin ride with him in the elevators of smaller buildings throughout the city. One such building was a two-story shopping complex called Purchase Land, where Nelsie worked at the Winn-Dixie. A favorite pastime of Purchase Land area hoodlums was to make off with Winn-Dixie's shopping carts and joyride them down a nearby embankment into a drainage ditch, and Nelsie's principal duty as a valued Winn-Dixie employee was to brave the steep decline and pungent refuse and abrasive vegetation of the embankment, retrieve the hoodlum abandoned carts from their knee-deep watery repository, then push them Sisyphianly up the now steep incline back to the store entrance, where the hoodlums inevitably lay in wait, ready to restart the process for its nth plus one iteration. Every day this happened, down and up and down the embankment, into the filthy water, fishing for the joy-ridden carts, Nelsie thinking it surely can't get worse than this, until, on a Sunday in the spring, Franklin showed up, riding up and down and up in the clear two-story elevator, his face contorted in a visible but not audible scream, 
his psychotherapist beside him, calmly scribbling down notes, and as Nelsie went back and forth from Winn-Dixie to Ditch, pushing carts in, chasing them out, she couldn't help but glance at Franklin, the picture of terror in his hydraulic plastic cage, and think, so, it does get worse than this, an observation that filled her with an overwhelming sense of empathy, sympathy, and sadness. So, when at last her shift ended, when the final cart had been coaxed up the embankment back to civilization, Franklin was still in the transparent elevator, still silently screaming, and Nelsie, too exhausted to think her decision properly through, headed for the elevator to see if she could do anything to help this poor, infinitely oscillating man. What she had to offer him in the way of psychological or emotional assistance wasn't immediately clear. After all, she probably would have had her own psychotherapist following her up and down the embankment and aggressively scribbling notes if her supermarket salary wasn't so bargain-rack minimal, but she was determined to do what she could to provide this agonized elevator rider with some small comfort, some semblance of peace, and so she pressed the up button, watched it glow a bright yellow, and waited for the doors to open. When she entered the elevator, she was immediately struck by just how loud Franklin's screams were in the surprisingly reverberant elevator interior. The psychotherapist was wearing bright orange earplugs, such as those sold in aisle 7 of the Winn-Dixie. Not knowing what to say, what to do, how to act, Nelsie just stood there, riding along with screaming Franklin and a scribbling therapist, from floor one to two and back, ad infinitum, until, gradually, Franklin stopped yelling, grew silent, regained some color in his face, his therapist now on his second notepad, shorthanding furiously, almost masturbatory in his clinical excitement, and Franklin and Nelsie continued writing together, an arm's length apart, wordless, as the sky dimmed, and Atlanta's myriad timed lights flickered on like 10,000 premature Christmas displays. Then, they began to talk about the weather, the traffic, Ted Turner, the Braves, NBC's Battle of the Bands, which they both agreed was the most brilliant thing on television, particularly the previous night's episode, a Greco-Roman wrestling match between members of Def Leppard and Motley Crue. Def Leppard, a huge underdog, had ultimately won, thanks to a stunning five-point takedown by their one-armed drummer in the third period. And, at some point, maybe during their recounting of favorite Battle of the Bands episodes, maybe during their analyses of the Braves' bullpen, maybe during their discussion of the collective citywide psychosis caused by the brutal Atlanta summer, Franklin realized that, tomorrow, he was not going to climb 39 flights of stairs, and Nelsie realized she wasn't going to push shopping carts up an embankment, and both realized that neither would ever again be lonely, that together they would be strong enough to face what had previously shamed, numbed, and crippled them, and up until now, with the world ending and so forth, they had made a pretty good run, had extended their terror-free honeymoon well past its expiration date, 
had avoided for roughly one year the setbacks, sorrows, and disappointments that one comes to expect from a universe that is petty, cruel, and basically just supremely unfair. See how the eggs no longer run, but are still moist, said Jesus on the television, cooking his omelette, and Franklin and Nelsie tightened their grips on one another as Christ held court on their flat screen, and the smoke from Atlanta's burning core drifted toward their suburb, obscuring the waning moon and blotting out the flickering light of the stars. Back at the bunker, Joe John Cyrus was giving a rapt audience of pajama-wearing pubescent girls a sneak preview of heaven via a PowerPoint presentation projected onto the wall opposite the ping-pong and foosball tables. Comprised of a series of clipart-accompanied bulleted lists, the presentation promised the girls wings, designer halos, unlimited chocolate cupcakes, front row seats to the concerts of all their favorite, non-eternally damned pop stars, and each time one slide transitioned to the next in a slow dissolve, wipe, or fade, the girls widened their eyes and held their breaths, eager to discover what other free product giveaways were awaiting them in paradise. Meanwhile, Charmaine had snuck out of the darkened prayer rec room to be with Wallace, who was watching CBS on his portable television in their secret crawlspace. She lifted the left half of his headphones off his ear and placed it over her own, nestling her head against his, their bodies conjoined Siamese twin-like in the cramped crawlspace interior, and the two unwilling Zebulonites watched and listened as a CBS reporter interviewed refugees from downtown Houston who had fled to the National Guard-patrolled Astrodome after their homes had been set ablaze by rioters, the reporter sticking a microphone in the face of every refugee staggering half-dead and witless past his camera crew, and then asking them to describe in 25 words or less their ideal paradise. All the women I could want, said one interviewee. Virgins, preferably. Big ol' house and a big screen TV, said a woman. My Darlene is still alive, said another. The refugees wanted heavens with never-ending supplies of chocolate and beer and baby pack ribs. They wanted limitless free movie passes, rodeo tickets, and willing sexual partners. They wanted the dead resurrected, the sick healed, the loved ones who no longer loved them to be waiting at the pearly gates with open arms, hungry for the reconciliatory embrace. Ain't no one do me wrong, said another refugee, cradling her infant daughter. Everybody love my Jesus. The refugees wanted heavens with flying cars, self-cleaning mansions, robot butlers, teleportation-based sporting events. They wanted Garth Brooks, Ray Charles, Martin Luther King, Tupac, Jesus as their neighbors. They wanted fountains of youth and waste-slumming fudge 
and on-demand orgasms and unlimited acai supercharged smoothies available in 7,000 different flavors and guaranteed to prevent atherosclerosis, lethargy, pain, anxiety, heartbreak, self-doubt, loneliness, fear, and sadness. The refugees wanted heavens without poverty, prostitution, murder, AIDS, without cocaine, meth, heroin, crack, without street corners littered with needles and newspaper blankets, and children they had to bury, and mornings they had to face with a thousand maddening, skull-boring questions such as, Lord, why? And what have I done wrong? And how much more can I possibly take? I'm young again, said an old man, and I don't feel no more pain. Chantel still want me, said a young man, as he repeatedly tried to fish a cigarette from an empty carton of smokes. When the reporter signed off, turned to the camera and said, Back to you, Katie, to a visibly apocalypse-fatigued Ms. Couric in CBS Studios in New York. Wallace removed the headphones from his and Charmaine's ears and asked Charmaine for her idea of a perfect heaven. She said, you know, clouds and harps and stuff, but what she really wanted, but was too self-conscious to admit to wanting, was a heaven where she was back in her old house in Kansas with the giant front lawn and the pineapple-themed furniture, and her real daddy was still around to give her candy bars and horsey rides, and she was six years old again, the age of stuffed bears, princess outfits, and Fourth of July sparklers, before the shouting and the fighting and the surprise car trips to scary faraway places such as Tulsa, Oklahoma and the Zion West Bunker, which, despite the ping pong and foosball tables, she imagined to be a perfect manifestation of hell. Charmaine posed the same question to Wallace and received the same answer, but what Wallace would have said, had he been able to summon the courage, was that heaven would be leaning in towards Charmaine's already tantalizingly close face and kissing her softly on the lips, like he'd seen his new daddy, Jojan Cyrus, do to the other girls in the pantry, the stockroom, behind the ammunitions pile, something he'd wanted to do ever since they first shared the crawl space together one year prior, imagining kissing her during Bible study, meals, mandatory prayers, theological powerpoints, such that there was no room left in his brain to contemplate the imminent apocalypse, the final judgment, the implications of eternal paradise, or eternal damnation, the universe in all its complexity and glory reduced to this one beautiful crawlspace sharing girl, whose lips were the gateway to a heaven that, despite the indoctrinations and PowerPoint presentations of the prophet, seer, and revelator Jojan Cyrus, Wallace was pretty sure didn't exist. Charmaine put the headphones back on, Charmaine listening to the left channel, Wallace the right, and as they watched Katie Couric mumble teleprompted omens and tragedies ear to ear in the sanctuary of the crawlspace, the pajama-clad girls in the rec room cheered at a PowerPoint slide 
promising them eternal hot fudge sundaes, clapping and rising for a standing ovation, after which Joe John dismissed all but one of them, who he led gently but briskly into his private room, locking the door behind him, the girl about to learn the true cost, including baggage and service fees, of a one-way ticket to paradise. Five of Disney's Apocalypse with the Stars and the on-air celebrities had begun to crack. Michelle Kwan repeatedly skated into the walls of the Disney ice rink in Anaheim to a Rodgers and Hammerstein medley. Rachel Ray dissolved into tears while preparing a coconut chicken curry, blaming it on the onions. Jeff Foxworthy, mid-stand-up routine, froze after the seventh you-might-be-a-redneck-if and stared deer in headlights eyed at the camera for an excruciating 30 seconds before walking off the set, slump-shouldered and silent, his punchline never to be delivered. Franklin and Nelsie watched all of this from their permanent vigil on their couch, subsisting on wheat thins, barbecue sauce, and packets of croutons scavenged from the slimmer and slimmer pickings of their pantry, The last of the trail mix had been devoured on day four during an aerobics lesson from Richard Simmons and a neon spandex-wearing Virgin Mary. Outside, the smoke from downtown Atlanta had thickened, news reports indicating that the looting, raping, and pillaging previously confined to the city's urban interior had now spread to the suburbs, nearby Riverside, Dunwoody, and Sandy Springs, 
allegedly overrun by apocalypse-crazed hedonists prowling country clubs, planned communities, and strip malls on stolen golf carts, thirsting for sex, blood, and fine liqueurs, and each hour the sound of distant gunfire and sirens grew closer and closer, causing Nelsie to tremble in Franklin's arms as she tried to focus her attention on the TV. Currently, the TV was showing a second Barbara Walters interview with Jesus as part of ABC's Christ's Comeback Special, and though Barbara started the interview innocuously enough, with puff questions concerning Jesus' facial hair, his preferred brand of sandals, his favorite apostle, by the five-minute mark, after Jesus shared an amusing anecdote involving the curing of a leper, Barbara had completely lost it, and she fell out of her chair, crawled toward Jesus' feet, and clutched at his robe, demanding again and again that he tell her whether or not she was going to heaven, until two producers pulled her off and carried her, screaming, to the green room. Meanwhile, in that very green room, God was sipping absentmindedly at mineral water and watching the apocalypse unfold on satellite TV, with Claire seated beside her, solidarily squeezing her hand. Since Tuesday, Claire's first day as assistant to the Lord, she hadn't left God's side, passing the long hours between God's brief television appearances by telling stories from her childhood in Wisconsin, eating fried cheese curds, flying kites on frozen lakes, petting cows at the state capitol building, and though God surely knew all these stories, her being all-knowing and all-seeing and so on, she still listened intently laughed at the appropriate moments, nodded encouragingly at the rest, and Claire found herself excavating narratives from her youth that until now had been all but buried beneath the detritus of her stifling, suffocating adulthood. Tell the one about roller skating as bratwurst again, said God, still wearing her white halter neck dress and sling-backed high-heeled shoes, and Claire obliged, recalling the low points of a summer job at a local fast food joint called Hot de Brat, as God as Marilyn giggled, whooped, and slapped her knee, glad to take her attention off the wall-mounted television, which, in stark contrast to Claire's whimsical recollections, featured footage of gunfights, explosions, cities reduced to ash, of communal wailing, teeth gnashing, televangelists still inexplicably begging for money, of religious riots in India, Israel, Spain, Detroit, Hindus, Christians, Jews, and Muslims devoting their final hours on earth to proving with guns, knives, and bombs whose God was the true God, the Marilyn Monroe rubbing elbows with Ben Affleck on ABC, the Bollywood star lip-syncing to Desi Pop on India's Dordershan, the Israeli supermodel Bar Raffaelli posing in lingerie on Israel Broadcasting Authority's Channel One, the veil-obscured mystery woman illuminated Arabic letters for a Middle Eastern version of a Wheel of Fortune on Al Jazeera. There were no seven-headed beasts rising from the sea, 
no plagues of scorpion-tailed locusts, no rivers and rains of fire and blood, all harbingers of the apocalypse, man-made, shootings, lynchings, beheadings, bombings, gang rapes and arsons, beatings and tactical strikes. God pleaded with her viewers on every channel, on BBC One in London, on Slovenska Televizia in Bratislava, on CNBC Africa in Johannesburg, on RTM One in Kuala Lumpur, to put down their guns, knives, chainsaws, belts and vests and jackets of explosives, and enjoy their television's primetime apocalypse specials, Vishnu's motorcycle jump, Jesus sings, tap dancing with Allah, but more often than not, she couldn't be heard over the din of gunfire and shouting, couldn't be seen on club-smashed, bullet-riddled screens. In Iraq, no longer able to watch her people murder each other senselessly in the streets, God, broadcast by Al-Sharqiyya, Al-Arabiya, Al-Jazeera, removed her veil, revealing herself to be the most beautiful woman who had ever walked the earth, a Shiite housewife who had lived in Sadr City until her death at age 20 from a suicide bombing, and her now-resurrected and unveiled face was so stunning, so heartbreakingly gorgeous, that everyone who saw it on their televisions fell to their knees and openly wept, and praised the comparisonless beauty of Allah in a spontaneous nationwide song, so that when God said, Please, you must be people of peace, they were powerless in the presence of her unassailable loveliness to be anything else, and all violence, ignorance, mistrust, and hatred was stricken from their hearts. But there were countless others who, without access to television, hiding out in bunkers, bombed out buildings, caves, never laid eyes on God's unveiled face, and when they emerged from their desert refuges to carry out God's will with their Kalashnikovs and grenades and M16 assault rifles, they found their enemies prostrate in the streets, as peaceful and serene as well-fed cattle, and the gunmen offered silent prayers of thanks to Allah for blessing them with such good fortune, as Sunni killed Shiite, Shiite killed Sunni, each killer ensuring his entitlement to virgin-populated beachfront property in the finest gated communities of heaven. Claire's ideal heaven, by the way, contained no virgins, harps, angels, gates, or guest lists. None of these things interested her the slightest bit. When 11.30 p.m. Eastern rolled around, all she wanted was a promise from God that she would never again feel like she had for the majority of the past two years, which was rather like how Franklin used to feel in elevators, except she felt that way everywhere, all the time, claustrophobic inside her skin, the doors occasionally opening, offering a view of the way out, only to close prematurely and cruelly as she commenced yet another descent. Now, seated next to God in the green room, recounting her sunnier, happier childhood, those doors were propped open, which was why Claire hadn't left God's side, not for a second, going so far as to sleep with her, curling up together on an expansive couch next to the complimentary pomegranate juice and mineral water, 
and when Barbara Walters was carried hysterically into the green room by the producers, Claire and God consoled her jointly, acting together as one, taking Barbara into their arms and rocking her into silence as the television above them broadcast God's beautiful Iraqi doppelganger pleading with her people in a desperate 24-hour telethon for love, understanding, empathy, and peace. Put down your rifles and dial now, she said. Put down your suicide vests and anti-tank guns and improvise explosive devices and dial now. And if they dial now, Allah, what will they win, said a popular Al Jazeera television personality. Happiness, said God. Peace, contentment, joy, pleasure. And is there anything else they have to do to qualify, said the personality. Just stop killing each other, said God, trying to force a wide telethon smile despite visible tears. What do I have to do to get you to stop killing each other? Please, tell me. Dial now. Our operators are standing by. At the bunker, it was T-minus 5 minutes to 7.77 p.m., thanks to the prophet, seer, and revelator Joe John Cyrus's overnight installing of special 80-minute clocks in the bunker interior. The rec room televisions, which would have displayed the more internationally recognized time of 11.12 p.m. Eastern, were turned off, the foosballs and ping-pong paddles put away, the mood and revelation central, one of appropriate apocalyptic solemnity and restraint. The Tulsa Zebulonites were all seated cross-legged on the floor, facing Joe John's final PowerPoint presentation projected onto the rec room's western wall as a team of young female volunteers passed out Dixie cups containing a bright, Kool-Aid-looking liquid that the PowerPoint presentation indicated would lead Joe John's followers to paradise. The available flavor options were grape, cherry, lemon-lime, and wildberry. Charmaine was seated with her mother, who read the bulleted lists of the PowerPoint with hungry, fire-lit eyes, as if in a trance, fingering rosary beads with one hand and stroking Charmaine's hair with the other. But Charmaine longed to be with Wallace at the opposite end of the room, whom she communicated her PowerPoint-induced boredom to through a series of hand signals, mouthed phrases, and contorted facial expressions. Who's ready to go to heaven, said Joe John through a cheap plastic megaphone, as the two youthful Zebulonites carried on their silent conversation, to which his followers answered, We are, we are. I can't hear you, said Joe John, histrionically cupping a hand to his ear. I said, who's ready to go to heaven? And everyone but Charmaine and Wallace lifted their Dixie cups in the air and amplified their affirmative cheers. Still snug on the couch in their Atlanta suburb, Franklin and Nelsie could hear not just distant gunfire, but voices now, the laughter of the golf cart riding gangs, the screams of their victims, horrifying crimes now being perpetrated not just on their television, but in the neatly trimmed cul-de-sacs, boulevards, 
and traffic circles of their formerly peaceful, strictly ordinance-regulated neighborhood. Unable to block out the violence outside, they blocked it on their TV, switching from the bloody, dismemberment-inundated news to Apocalypse with the Stars, where God, as Marilyn Monroe, was performing a dance routine to put on a happy face from the Broadway musical Bye Bye Birdie with an unknown partner, the two dancers skipping and sashaying gracefully across the set as a trio of gaffers provided the musical accompaniment on banjo, mandolin, and ukulele. The partner, of course, was God's assistant, Claire, who in her youth had been an excellent dancer, ballet, jazz, modern, tap, and when God strode in front of the camera to keep the entertainment going after the last of the celebrities had succumbed to hysterics, Sigourney Weaver, Ice-T, David Hasselhoff all crumpled to the floor in fetal positions, quietly moaning. Claire had dutifully followed her, agilely aping God's pivots, toe taps, and grapevines as the camera captured their grace and beauty for all those still alive to witness the world drawing to its spectacular close. Franklin's ideal heaven, it's worth mentioning, was anywhere where he could live with Nelsie in health, love, and happiness for all of eternity, so that even death could not do them part. He could not imagine heaven without her. Franklin's greatest fear was that, due to some clerical error, some administrative oversight, he would arrive in heaven to find glittering palaces and pristine waters and endless supplies of gourmet food served by attentive, respectful Frenchmen in bow ties, accompanied by virtuoso Italian violinists for added ambiance. But no, Nelsie. The air would be clean, the lawns of his mansion freshly cut, verdant, his faucets calibrated to dispense fine burgundies, cabernets, sauvignon blancs, but none of this would matter, because Nelsie wouldn't be there to share it with him. The thought of heaven without Nelsie was worse than how he had felt in the elevator, because this was an eternal elevator, the doors never opening, descending to basement to sub-basement to sub-sub-basement ad infinitum, Nelsie's absence haunting him for the full duration of time and post-time, his horror, torment, loss, unrelenting, a pain he could not, would not, even try to imagine. So if heaven met no Nelsie, then he did not want heaven. If, in fifteen minutes, she were to be taken from him, he wanted only oblivion, to feel nothing, for there to be nothing left of him, to feel. He mentioned none of this to Nelsie, not out loud, but as the voices of the golf cart murderers drew closer, their threats now perfectly discernible, intelligible, looted alcohol rants punctuated by expletives, hyena laughs, scripture, he held on to Nelsie even tighter, and he was certain that she understood. Even when a brick crashed through the window, the voice is now even clearer, glass exploding across the floor, Franklin and Nelsie kept holding each other, kept tactily reassuring one another, kept watching television, God in her billowing dress, Claire in her t-shirt and jeans, dancing lithely and effortlessly in front of a painted backdrop of a utopian, unburning Los Angeles. 
You're an excellent dancer, said Claire to God, as God took her into her arms, swaying her hips to the floor-stomped rhythm of the loveless crewmen. You're not so bad yourself, said God. By the way, I'm sorry I wanted to die, said Claire, as God initiated a brief tango. You go into all the trouble to make me and all. I know, said God. It's okay. God transitioned into a foxtrot, and Claire dug her fingernails into God's bare, milk-white shoulders. I don't want to die anymore, Claire said. I know, said God, leading Claire into a samba, a salsa, the Charleston, the twist. In the bunker, the jerry-rigged clocks neared 777, and the Zebulonites erased their Dixie cups as a toast to impending paradise, and drank. Prior to this, there had been dancing, and a raucous communal song, the Zebulonites singing in three-part harmony the praises of their god and prophet, as Jojon strummed his acoustic guitar, the endlessly repeating chords, C, F, and G. In the few seconds before the drink's special recipe took effect, before the refreshing tang of the Kool-Aid's artificial flavoring was superseded by the cumulative properties of the Valium, chloral hydrate, pentagram, and cyanide that Jojon had secretly added to speed his loyal followers along to heaven, the Zebulonites were all smiles, clapping, singing, dancing, euphoric, eagerly anticipating the many wonders and mysteries promised them in the PowerPoint's final bulleted list. But Charmaine and Wallace would witness none of this, nor would they witness what followed, the seizures, the screaming, the clawing at the ground, crawling beneath foosball and ping-pong tables, the expectorations of vomit and blood. They had snuck out during Joe John's acoustic guitar playing, the PowerPoint's grand finale, when the Zebulonites had risen to their feet and harmonized their glorifications to God and his scraggly-bearded messenger, and were now running through the hallway, hand in hand, laughing at the banalities and absurdities they had just been forced to ingest. In heaven, you will never have to do your laundry, giggled Charmaine, one of her favorite claims of the PowerPoint. Carbonated beverages will stay ice cold, and cheese will never go bad. You will never need to use the restroom, repeated Wallace, but if you decide to anyway, your bodily fluids will all smell and taste like honey. They were headed for the crawl space to watch television, but on the way they passed the bunker's exit and noticed that, for the first time, the armed guards were conspicuously absent. They stopped dead in their tracks and contemplated this unexpected revelation. There were no windows on the double doors to allow them a view of outside, but had there been, they would have seen a pure black sky punctuated by dazzling white stars, the night of rural Tuscahoma too far from self-destructing civilization to be blemished by billowing smoke, oscillating police lights, plumes of chemical dust. The doors blocked out all exterior sound, but had they not, the two friends would have heard not sirens and screams, but crickets, owls, the soft murmuring of the wind. Charmaine and Wallace did not speak, 
but like Nelsie and Franklin conjoined on their couch, like God and Claire tangoing on the television, they communicated via touch, expressed their deepest hopes, desires, and fears through a simple squeeze of each other's hand, saw, in that one moment, each other's true, unadulterated visions of heaven. Charmaine in her longed-for childhood, Wallace and Charmaine's longed-for embrace, eons upon eons of existence scrapped and discarded in favor of these two perfect pinpoint coordinates of space-time, nothing else important, nothing else remotely worth their pain, suffering, and loss. And then, in unspoken agreement, they changed course and headed for the exit, running at full speed, their footsteps thundering in the hallway, louder, 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 until they burst through the doors and stepped onto quiet muffling grass, still hand in hand, laughing, their laughter the loudest sound for miles, as they ran through the fields to nowhere in particular, in the still of the Oklahoma night. Father time and mother earth are growing old so fast we've got to get out of here place your cold hand inside mine the earth on her last legs well, she's breathing hard All the stars are free We'll take your Records and your dreams All the stars are free We'll take your records and your sleep Take 
records and your dreams All the stars are free We'll take your records and your dreams Get out of here.